Osiris. Hey guys, it's Dave and Brian. Before we kicked off the episode, we want to tell you a little bit about what's happening in the Osiris Podcast Network as we move through Fish Summer Tour 2018. So if you guys haven't been checking out the Helping Friendly Pod, our podcast brethrens, their assortment of quick hits that come out the morning or afternoon following each show. Um, so we talked to you about the first five shows of the tour in our last episode. Uh, so where we're at right now, uh, Bill Graham, night one, featured Brad and RJ talking in a hotel room about the show. Uh, Bill Graham, night two, featured Jonathan and RJ. RJ brought some really bad opinions, apparently, and Jonathan set him straight. And they talked a bit about possum. Uh, forum, night one, we had Mike Ferguson, who can be found at MIK3Ferguson. Talked about a uh, pretty solid, straightforward Friday night show from uh, the Forum in L.A. And uh, night two of the Forum, yours truly, uh, myself, Brian Brinkman at Suffering Juke. Talked a bit about a show that we'll get into here. Um, and then finally, uh, from Austin, we had Adam from the No Cover Podcast talk a bit about it. So some really great stuff there from HF Pop. I also want to draw your attention to the Osiris Live Couch Report. This is brought to you by Relics Magazine. There's going to be live YouTube footage on the Relic Station, both pre-show, set-break, and post-show. You can hashtag it Couch Report. I know, I think it was Tom Marshall and RJ. They did uh, the Couch Report for the Gorge. I know there was recently one in San Francisco. I know that there was going to be one in Alpharetta, which is actually going to kick off tomorrow. He's recording this on a Thursday night. And we will have that uh, link in the show notes in our Twitter for you. Absolutely. And before we get started, we want to let you guys know to keep playing the Lure Social Setlist game. This is a ton of fun. Great way to interact with the larger fan base. Pick your songs. Pick a couple cover songs, a couple deep cuts, a couple bust outs, openers, long jams. I know I scored a few big points in Austin because I played the fun game of picking sample, which was uh, available at that point as a deep cut as it had not been played in 25 shows. Scored some big points there. Lots of fun stuff. Um, we've been playing along all summer. Really fun to compete. I know that I'm really bad at this game because for whatever reason I can't predict set lists, but it's still fun nonetheless. So at that note, let's go beyond the pond. Turn her back on stop. 
but she wanted to be alone You can see all the stars as you walk down Hollywood in vain Hey folks, I'm David Goldstein And I am Brian Brinkman You are tuned into episode 41 of the Beyond the Pond podcast This is the podcast in which Brian and myself generally use the music of Fish as a means of introducing the listener to other bands that we think that they might enjoy These are usually not jam bands because we love fish. We are fish fans, especially when fish is on summer tour. Makes things very interesting. But the problem with fish fans is sometimes they get myopic. They only listen to fish. There's a big world of other bands out there. They don't scratch the surface. And this just makes their lives a lot less fulfilling than they should be. Absolutely. And that's where we come in. We're here to take your love for fish and help you go beyond the pond. It's been our goal here for a year and a half. And here in our 41st episode, that goal continues. And in this episode, we are focusing on not one, but two jams from the last five shows of Fish's Summer Tour. The shows that we're covering, Bill Graham, July 24th, 2018, through Austin, Texas, July 31st, 2018. The two jams in question, Set Your Soul Free, and Soul Planet, when combined, we are setting your soul planets free. It is quite the mashup of soul. Soul, 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 and not the style of soul you get from a Tedeschi Trucks band show. This is a very fishy brand of soul. And some of the themes that we're going to explore in this episode include Don't Judge This Record by Its Cover, The Soul of a Song, in 2015 and 2009, reprise new songs to find the evolution of fish. And on that note, let's get to the soul. about the Set Your Soul Free and Soul Planet here from Bill Graham and The Forum, respectively. We know there's been some excellent jams over the last five shows. Why are we focusing on these two new songs? Well, kind of for context, 
There's been a lot of bickering this tour. Is the band too sloppy? Are they playing up to their full potential? Is Trey's rig getting in the way? Lots of fair questions. We're not here to cast aside those questions at all. We understand the concerns. We appreciate, we share some of these concerns. But at the end of the day, and this goes with why we've picked these two songs to feature in this episode, Fish is always defined by forward momentum and evolution. And if there's any positive trend we've seen so far, here 10 shows into a 24-show tour, it's the immediate impact of their new songs on their interest in jamming. And to set your soul free from Bill Graham Civic Auditorium on July 25th and the Soul Planet from the Forum from Los Angeles on July 28th really summarize the band at their best right now. What, what are your thoughts on all this, Dave? Uh, I think that the Set Your Soul Free Jam might actually be the closest they've come to sounding like Fish 2.0 in quite some time, albeit it's far cleaner in terms of Trey's tone and just the rest of the band in general. I've listened to it about six times, and I still don't have it memorized because there's a large amount of good and variety within. It even kind of reminds me a little bit of the Nassau Roses Jam from the Island Tour and that it never exactly peaks, but there's enough variation and enough ideas that you don't exactly mind. And with the Soul Planet Jam, that's just joyous. I mean, that's practically a spiritual successor to um, the Reading 2013 Down Heart Disease and that... It's just a fiery bliss jam in D major. It's not the most original Trey move, but it's nice to hear him dial down the effects for a change and just fucking play the guitar. And in this case, he uses a, a very clean tone and he plays and it just pours out of your speakers. And you don't really mind that he's just, you know, doing a bliss jam in D major because when he's that locked in and having that much fun playing the guitar, it's just fantastic. Yeah, and I mean, I would agree with all of that. And I think, you know, to your point, these are two vastly different jams. I think that was part of the reason we wanted to talk about both of them. Um, They both showcase the band really intent on making the most of their new songs. And this is something that we haven't really seen in full since 2015. And before that, really 2009. I mean, if you remember uh, 2014 and 2016, both uh, included a lot of debuts, but not a ton of debuts that really... um, pushed forward from an improvisational standpoint. There were a lot of more standardized debuts that haven't really ever broken out of their song structures. This summer tour, at least from the standpoint of immediate songs that the band wants to jam, reminds me so much of 2015 and 2009. And I think it's really important because, and this is something we're going to talk about here in a little bit, but you know, the Baker's Dozen was such a huge deal for the band but it kind of feels like this peak moment that was reached and for the band to continue and push forward from that. um, And the peaks of the past five years, really since the 2012, 2013 Renaissance around the 30th anniversary, they really need to make sure that their newest songs are guiding them into the unknown for regular discovery. Right. Back in 2015, if I recall, that's when a lot of the stuff that ended up on big boat made its debut, like blaze on 2015, no man and no man's land, and I mean, both of those songs in particular were absolutely huge components of the third set of the New Year's run for uh, 2015. Yes. Really gigantic, right? Yeah, and those songs immediately, if you remember, like they debuted, especially, you know, Blazon and No Men, they debuted at ben- in Bend. And um, immediately after that, 
when the band played at Shoreline Amphitheater, uh, they opened up the second set with a like 15 minute take on Blazon. And the very next night at the forum, they opened up with a 13 minute take on No Men in No Man's Land. And by the end of the summer, Blazon was a jam vehicle and No Man in No Man's Land was following right behind. I mean, it was just very, very clear that those two songs immediately felt like, you know, exploration jumping off points for the band. Um, right. I think the first time I heard Blazon at Bend, my original thinking, I might have even tweeted this out if somebody wants to go and excavate my old tweets for scandalous material, I might have said, this sounds like something that Vince Wellnick would have played in the second set of a 1995 Dead show. And I don't think that anymore. Those two songs have really like uh, nestled their way into like the fish cannon to the point that you almost don't even think of them as new songs anymore. They're just fish songs. Um, and I think that that's where the band is trying to go with some of these new songs this summer. Um, all right. So taking a step back here and going over the last five shows of the tour, we're going to go through this show by show like we did in our last episode. And we'll kick it off with the second Tuesday night show of the tour from Bill Graham Civic Auditorium on July 24th, 2018. Um, this was a really fun show to kick off what is kind of shocking to consider the fifth run ever at Bill Graham Civic Auditorium. Uh, this show featured an excellent set list with a really great amount of rarities, a decent amount of exploration, and really excellent flow. This was not the focus thematic mindfuck of the Gorge Night 3 on 722, but this was the kind of fish show that literally everyone, those in attendance and those at home, can agree was absolutely awesome. So you've got a very slow, kind of Y-heavy extended 46 days, and McGruff opened up the show brilliantly. City is kind of flirted with Type 2 and a very tight version of Bowie closed things out hot. And the second set is just 45 minutes of effortless flow. You really don't see the seams. The song I heard, The Ocean Sink, picks up with the gorgeous New Year's Eve version left off. This is maybe the first Mercury I can think of to go full-on underwater Type 2. And the Karini kind of veers from a nasty, low-slung Mike Gordon funk, which almost kind of reminds me of the distorted bass line in the Beastie Boys song Gratitude. And then it goes from that to uh, Ecstatic Bliss Doesn't Feel Forced. It's easily a tour highlight, and if not my favorite jam of the tour, it's not too far off. And at this point, you'd think you'd get a tray ballad, but we get Maze. And then Boogie on Reggae Woman and Harry Hood. So uh, really nothing not to like in this set yeah i really loved this show as well and um this show definitely i know i don't have the sympathy of a uh, east coaster here who had to probably stay up until two o'clock in the morning listening to this but i definitely stayed up for it Twelve thirty is not early even in mountain time zone um i still would go with gorge night three just from a personal preference standpoint being my favorite show of the tour i mean i've been very clear i think that that's one of the strongest shows 3.0 from a jamming standpoint um but i loved everything about bill graham night one there's nothing you can argue with a show like that if you see it you walk out with a stupid grin on your face if you hear it at home you have all of twitter celebrating and you have that you know sensation of being like okay everything is good with the tour we're still moving forward everything is okay and then jumping into uh, the second night here at Bill Graham. So this was a free webcast, which is a fun thing that everybody appreciates. Um, 
And the band then responded with a really weird, kind of slow, lackluster first set. Um, Roguet opened things up, which was the first time that had happened since August 2nd, 1998, exactly 20 years ago from when we are recording, which is kind of weird. Wow. Um, yeah, right. that is weird. Um, a lot of good shows in August 2nd. A lot August of good 2nd's shows. really good vintage. Absolutely. Um, but I love that as an opener. I think that was a really good opener. Um, Tube followed, had some really nice little mini funk. Um, I would say Ocelot and... Um, Boogie, or excuse me, Ocelot and uh, Backwards on the Number Line were probably the peaks of the set, which says, says a lot about set one. Um, and then set two begins with the aforementioned 24 plus minute Set Your Soul Free. Just a phenomenal 24 minute jam to kick off a set with a new song. We, we are on record saying that we love that. And you got the twist, it certainly reaches some highs. Doesn't really compete in full from the completely awesome version on a 722 2018. Sense and Subtle Sounds is 10-minute monster. What's the use fits here nicely. And it's really a, it's a pretty good raising version of Possum. Actually, I'll say, on this night, I did not take advantage of the free webcast because I saw, um, was seeing the band, The Hold Steady, was uh, celebrating the 10th anniversary of their fantastic record, Stay Positive. That was a show in Jersey City I was at. So I leave the venue and turn on my phone and see that Fish played a new song called Keeping It Real. I immediately assumed it was a Mike Gordon song without even listening to it, and I was correct. <laughs> and yeah, the first is weird. It's kind of slow. It's a bit disjointed. And for some reason, Trey still can't be bothered to learn all the parts to Mike Gordon songs like Waking Up Dead, which is kind of a weird enough song on its own without Trey playing it weirdly. But I will say, um, I haven't heard enough about the sense and subtle sounds in the second set, which slightly botched opening aside. It's fucking awesome. Rocks very hard, very, very purposeful. And the what the you what's the use is better placed here, and I think better played than it was uh, in Tahoe after that somewhat lackluster down disease. So good second set. 24 minutes set your soul free, and then some interesting things afterwards. I don't think it was as good as Bill Graham Night One. I would agree. I think it was a bit of a step down from a show quality overall, but I think that that second set, you know, at that point in the tour, really pretends to great things. Um, and as we'll talk about here in the last show, this mini run, weak first sets don't necessarily lead to weak second sets in, in all uh, situations. So I think it was, you know, at the end of the day, um, I think it was a really good rebound for the band from a set standpoint i think that they got some songs out of the way that they wanted to bring out for um the summer tour thus far um but you know really that jamming that that set yourself free and everything that followed is what we're all looking for all right and then so we move south in california down to the la forum for two nights friday and saturday july 27th and july 28th I attended these shows. These were my first shows of summer tour. And uh, the run began with what I would say was a very fun, very straightforward show on July 27th. So excellent mini improvisation splattered across the show. Set one was probably the highlight of the show overall, which if you had told 16-year-old me I'd see the songs that I did in set two and not think that that was the best set I've ever seen, I would probably punch you in the face. But hey, that's how it goes. Um, Everything's Right and Wolfman's Brother legitimately got there as far as set one jams go. 
Um, not quite Tahoe Ghost or the Gorge Simple, but on par with the Tahoe, everything's right. The Bill Graham 46 days, very solid, good exploratory 13 to 15 minute jams that uh, definitely had everyone in the arena shocked, everyone rocking there, and are definitely really listenable on, uh, on playback. Um, and then set two really features an amazing set list and some great attempts at jamming, but never fully clicks. The Blazon, the Down with Disease, the Simple, and the Ghost all move towards ambient soundscapes, but none really broke through. Probably the closest doing so was the Ghost. Um, what were your thoughts on kind of this show and set, Dave? Yeah, I would agree with everything that you said. Certainly, uh, I think the Wolfman's was pretty excellent for a first set version. Not so much a Type 2 version as a 1.5 version. I think it kind of kind of stayed in the same key, but was really nicely developed. Had some very nice page clap network. And really, Trey had some excellent peaks towards the end. So it's definitely one that I'm going to listen to again. And uh, the last three minutes of The Ghost are Trey Anastasia Shred City. This is stand in front of your mirror and air guitar style tray and plus page really eggs in mind piano wise too it actually kind of resembles a similarly intense page pounding piano ending of uh the somewhat forgotten version of ghost from december 30th of 2013 i think actually might have been part of mike's groove but yeah with well, a ghost right yeah you're right yeah i think yeah that's um yeah. Yeah, that really last three minutes again, kind of like the soul plan we're talking about is just Trey shredding, clean, no effects, just rocking the fuck out for three minutes is really nice. And of course, you know, any set that ends with Mike's groove and the slate of the traffic light, that's fun. Mike's is pretty solid for a self-contained version. You got a sleeping monkey audience participation, kind of a, a slowed down week of paw, which I think someone once described to me as dead in co speed. Not entirely wrong, but okay. <laughs> you know, it was uh, a satisfyingly fun show. Lots of, I don't know if it kind of had some of the top to bottom fireworks of the other show, but not much in the way of lulls either. B, B plus. Yeah, I walked out. I walked out of the show saying if I was, you know, a pitchfork writer and this was a record I was reviewing, it would get, it would get like a solid... 8.2 or 8.3 out of 10 not a best new music but just a solid solid effort um you know it's not the type of fish show that is really going to draw in somebody who's seen fish a ton of times or who's listened to a lot of fish shows but it'd be a really good show for someone who's just past that kind of like noob stage where you say okay, here's kind of the next thing that the band can do before you really freak them out by giving them like a Summer 95 jam or something like that. Um, I don't think that this is the kind of show that earned a Sleeping Monkey, but I think it was uh, definitely satisfying. I was definitely happy with the show. Also, I have to add, if Weekapod Guru was played at Bobby Weir Dead & Co. Speed, and the version of Sand that closed out the first set was played at 1983 Jerry Speed which if you know what I'm talking about when I talk about the early days in Jerry Garcia pretty fast totally totally <laughs> and uh, then jumping into the second night here at the forum returning to the venue and, and before going on I mentioned a bit of this in the uh, um, quick hit I did with uh, with HF pod um, 
I was blown away by the forum, and I've really got to encourage anyone who's listening, if you haven't made it out to a forum show, I know that the set list and the shows haven't been all that encouraging, um, but the venue itself is shaped and feels very similar to Madison Square Garden, very similar in size, similar in scope in the sense that there's not really a bad seat in the house. I sat right next to the stage on the first night, and I sat all the way at the other side of the arena, almost the very last row on the top uh, section in um, uh, the second night, looking head-on at the stage. Both nights, I had phenomenal sound, really great sight lines of the band, never felt like I was like too far away from everything, I and mean, it was a really, really great venue to see a show at. And one thing I loved about this venue is, you know, so they've really made it They've kind of remastered the venue, if you will, for um, Sonic, you know, so for sound, for, um, uh, you know, artist pleasure. Like, it feels like a really good rock arena. It sounds very good. But the thing I love about it is they haven't made it glossy. They haven't glitzed it out. You walk in. It's very low lit. There's low ceilings. There's, um, you have to, like, walk down a flight of stairs to get to the bathroom. You walk into the venue. Again, very low lit. It's like red carpeting everywhere. Um, the seats are red, so it has this like cool ambiance to it inside. When the lights are on, they're very dim. Um, just it's where the like, Lakers played in the '80s, right? So it's where the Lakers played in the '70s and '80s, where the Bulls won their first title. Um, there's no sports now, so there's no advertisements inside. It's just you feel like you're walking into a venue that you could have seen Led Zeppelin at yesterday. <laughs> it's it's so authentic. It feels like the 70s. I recommend anyone take a weekend, go out to L.A. for a fish run. Hopefully they do another two- or three-night run out there, eat in Koreatown, eat some tacos, soak up California. It's You can't beat it. But, um, you know, transitioning. So the second night here at the Forum, I'll just come out and say it. This was probably the worst set list, <laughs> at least the top five, that I've ever seen in my entire life. I don't think I could have ever written a worse set list of. I mean, what are your thoughts on just looking at this show on paper here, Dave? Um, if you look at a second set that has a seven-minute Birds of a Feather and Meat Stick in it back-to-back, you'd be excused for thinking that this is the worst second set since night two of Texas in 2016. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's kind of ugly. And yet, I kind of fucking love this show. I walked out of the show with a fucking smile on my face and, you know, call me a jam fiend, whatever you will. I am pretty addicted to the way that the band jams uh, and, and I love being surprised. And for me to walk out and have a Timber, Hill Devil Falls, Fuego, and Soul Planet all go type two, the last three of those go heroically type two. And it's what I'm looking for from Fish. I will not say that this was a top... 10, 15, probably even 20 fish show I've been to by any means. Um, but, you know, fish is really weird, and you simply can't go in with expectations. And I'm fully convinced that the band was trolling us at this point in time. Uh, fully convinced. Yeah, this is just uh, Don't Judge Yourself by its cover. And, yeah. aside, I mean, for me, aside from what you said, the very interesting excursion into the key of F major, and an excellent Kill Double Falls. Set one doesn't do a hell of a lot. You've got that meat stick sticking out like a sore thumb in the middle of set two. But also, 
This is hands down the best version of Fuego Fish has ever played. I will fight anybody who thinks otherwise. I've already listened to this Fuego ten times. So, it's pretty standard Fuego, but then it gets really quiet, and the second half is patient. It builds something from nothing, and is just a gorgeous example of Trey and Paige listening to each other to build a fully formed jam around uh, a simple... C major to G major to D major riff that as it turns out he was already touring with around 10 minutes and 15 seconds in the set your soul free from Bill Graham it's almost like you're witness to a scavenger hunt to Trey's mind and just um, just about this riff from the Fuego Jam it kind of reminded me a little of the vocal melody from the Bell and Sebastian song seeing other people off of their fantastic If You're Feeling Sinister album then I got a text message from a friend of the pond, Seth Eisenstein, who's uh, Assassin Strikeouts on Twitter, who thought it reminded him of the chorus of the classic melancholy kinks on celluloid heroes. And he's right. There's definitely, if you listen to that song, especially the chorus, there's a piano riff that directly mimics what Trey was playing. And whether or not that's what Trey had in mind, I don't know. But it's fucking great. And I know that Fish put this up in a... Uh, I think some 4K video on the Live Fish website. And it might actually be my favorite jam of the tour so far, just because it was so incredibly unexpected, incredibly good. And yeah, Soul Planet's awesome too. So this is this is just an example of a show that you look at it, it looks ugly, but the highs are super high. So it's super peaks and valleys, but we're talking like some fucking Mount Rushmore peaks. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's strange, and we'll get into this when we talk about the next show. I, I saw three shows throughout this five night run that we're talking about here, and the show that had the best set list was my least favorite of them all, and the shows that had the worst set list um, by far had my favorite moments, and are the shows I walk away saying that's why I go see Fish, and that's just the the challenge of the band, and and it's a great challenge. I, I personally love it. That's why we keep doing this. Why it's why. We dedicate so many hours to podcasting about them. Um, yeah, the Fuego, I tweeted this right after the, the jam ended. I, I definitely rooted for that Fuego to succeed the way I would like a unexpected comeback from the Cubs in like the ninth inning. You know, it was one of those like, I remember hearing the riff that Trey was playing and in my head being like, ah, it's too bad that they're like fading out and they're going to go into whatever they're going to play next. And it's going to be like an 11 minute forgettable Fuego. And then they kind of kept going for like 30 seconds. And I was like, you know, it was like a guy stealing second. Okay, we got yeah. runners in scoring position. We're going. And like by the end of it, I was like arms in the air, like cheering at the top of my lungs. I lost my voice a little bit because of it. I was sta- standing next to a friend of the pod, uh, Ben Greenfield at Guy Forget OPT. Um, he and I afterwards gave high fives. Like that's exactly why we do this. That like, and I remember I said at that point, they could play whatever the hell they want at the end of this sh- for the rest of the show and I'll be happy now and of course they play Meat Stick which I've caught on every single fish run I've seen since 2015 um, please guys just stop that I, I don't want that anymore um, don't play it in the second set just, you want to open the show with it that's big, cool encore fun encore don't play in the second set stop mid second set just doesn't but yeah and then Soul Planet again I mean it felt like this bad joke when they did Meat Stick and a Soul Planet and uh, Soul Planet ended up just kicking ass and an amazing jam, which is why we're playing it. So 
Um, also, there was a pretty good Jibu to open the set. You don't see that as yeah, much as you used to. Yeah. Oh, man, I can't believe we almost forgot to mention it. It was very nicely extended, type 1 totally, but like kind of like what you were talking about um, uh, with regards to the Wolfmans in the show prior. It just kind of explored all the like musical areas that you could within Gata Jibu and um, was really pleasing and wonderful to listen to. Yeah, nothing like we're talking, nothing like uh, the Canada July 4, 2000 Jibu that was just part of the most oh, recent no, no. live fish. It's still very good. Still very good. Um, and then, so jumping into our last show here are the runs. So Tuesday night, July 31st from Austin. Um, I was at this show as well. I just got back in town yesterday as a recording date here. Um, I had a really wonderful couple of days in Austin, and I will say, here's my piece as well about this. Uh, the venue's very nice. It's on a massive racetrack, but um, and it's got kind of the, the lot and shakedown is kind of weirdly separated from the entrance to the show, and there's like nothing in between shakedown and the actual entrance to the venue, which kind of made it weird, like you get dropped off, and then you have to walk, and then you have to walk back. But anyway, once you got into the venue, security's super nice. They have great food there, local food trucks, great beer. All the food stays open throughout the show. Drinks stop serving about 20 or 30 minutes into set two. But if you're hungry after the show, you got food options on your way out. Very few lines for food. Bathrooms were super clean, well-maintained. Security was really nice, like I said. Very small, cozy venue. I was in the pit. There were drinks uh, and servers that came through. You never had a moment where you felt like you didn't, couldn't get what you needed. Sound was amazing. Um, and I will just say, you know, PSA to Fish, if you're listening, if you throw down in Austin just once, I think you got like 33% of the way there on this show. If you throw down a, ma- a massive show, you're going to attract people to Austin. It's a great city to hang out in. It's great restaurants, great bars. It's a cool, cool place to be. Come down there, play two nights. You'll encourage people to come there like you have encouraged them to go to Nashville. Yeah, so getting to the show. Um, so just getting out of the way, set one was pretty boring. Uh, it was well played. The band was tight. They sounded great, but whew, that set list uh, really just... The end of set one, I just kind of was like, okay, I, I'm glad I'm hanging out with my brother. That was the big consolation for me. Um, Got your happy things, halfway to the moon, the line... Funky bitch, Roba dance, yeah, and a lot of. I read on I read on Twitter at some point, which only puts salt in the wounds. You know, you, you know that you're at a kind of in a boring set when you jump on Twitter halfway through. Um, and I jumped on it, and uh, someone said, "Oh, fish is clearly resting their starters for the East Coast," and that definitely felt uh, like a little bit of a punch in the gut. But I couldn't I couldn't say that they were wrong. Um, <laughs> game after a night game. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but the third quarter of this show, the start of the second set, the first basically 55 minutes to an hour, um, some of the best fish of the year so far. And I don't think that's an overstatement. Um, when they came out and they opened with Everything's Right, I kind of, again, was like, seriously, I just saw this two shows ago. But um, that jam, I was 10 feet from Trey, dead center, no one in my way, staring right at him. And I was just like blown away by the, the licks that he was playing, the way they built that jam. It was it was a gorgeous, gorgeous jam. Um, and then going down with Z's, that was like a day and night type of jam. 
you know, very, very dark, very ominous, very groove-driven. Um, just a hell of a way to open up a second set. Yeah, from uh, what I was able to listen to, the Everything's Right, Down With Disease, Steam, and Seven Below is pretty flawless, bordering on fantastic, especially the Down With Disease. I think they were playing in the key of F-sharp minor, which they don't do too often. It uh, got dark, understandably dark, into a very nice steam. Seven Below, despite only being around nine minutes, really peaks mightily. And I don't mind Dirt in the second set. It's a gorgeous ballad, and after a relatively relentless 50 or 55 minutes or so, it was a very well-placed come down. But yeah, I mean... Agree, and you need a, you kind of need a ballad in that moment. Yeah, right? when I, I saw it, heard everything's right open in the second set, I thought, okay, obviously Trey loves this song, he loves playing it, so they're going to open it up. Let's just see how they do it. And they did it excellently. And I really, I think this is what, the second or third? This is like the second down at disease they played in like the two-hole on this tour? Yeah, the last one was the um, uh, the version from the forum that came out of Blaze On. And, right, right. Um, no down with disease had really opened up on this tour thus far, so it was definitely it was the best poised tour. for a big version. It was the best one without question. Um, uh, and, you know, it just kind of went to places. I, I'm not going to... I'm not going to throw around it being a, a top 10 or a top 20 version. Um, I think it was a high quality version and above average. Um, and I think that what they were going for, I really like that Mike uh, led the jam in certain sections. And I think that that's a really cool thing that they should keep experimenting with. But, you know, just to hear them play such a blissful jam and follow it up immediately with such a dark jam really kind of brought me back to, you know, great memories of the Baker's Dozen and, you know, really just showcases the diversity that they can play with. Um, I think it's just kind of one of those things that we should all be really, you know, praising and really celebrating from the band. Um, and, and, and I think it only showcases good things to come for the East Coast. I mean, they're about to play. When this comes out, they'll just finish three nights at Alpharetta, but they're about to do, you know, Atlanta, Camden, Raleigh, Merriweather, and then a festival. I mean, that's the type of run that, should you know, kill fish is born for them. I mean, this is their their home turf. They should kill, and if they play anything on par with these, you know, with this jamming segment, everyone's in for a huge treat. Um, you know, just kind of finishing off this show. I personally think that they should have ended right after Dirt with a "You Enjoy Myself." Instead, they did Wedge, Wilson, and Antelope cover the exact same amount of time that a "You Enjoy Myself" would take. Love and Cut Encore. None of this was bad. All very high energy, but quite inessential. Um, I definitely didn't feel the need to, you know, kind of hear like four just rocker songs after after that. I kind of wanted like a more like spiritual cap to the set. But again, that's expectations. And um, I think I walked away with 55 minutes of high quality fish. That is the reason I go and see this band eight to 10 times a year. Yeah, and if I could have just a few thoughts in general about these shows, I think that if there's any, quote, problem about Summer Tour 18, it's that the Bakers doesn't create an impossible standard to live up to. Our Osiris podcast network mate, uh, Jonathan Hart from Broke Down Pod and uh, the Helping Friendly Pod kind of summed it up to me on Twitter yesterday and correctly stating that uh, Bakers Dozen was a self-contained experiment with tons of, pep- uh, with tons of preparation cover songs themes and painstaking detail whereas this is just 
Tour. And I think that's right. I mean, it's been dotted a little bit by the usual 3.0 tropes and that the first sets aren't terribly exciting, but all can be forgiven if there's a Cracker Jack set too. But unlike, uh, say, 2014 and 2016, you've been consistently getting 30, 40 minutes of future archival material every night. I think exceptions being Tahoe 2 and Jordan, uh, Gorge 2. I mean, I've always gone on record as not giving too much of a shit about flubs. I take the flubs as a sign of they're getting a bit old, and the fact that they're one of maybe three jam bands that actually has complex written compositions, so there's actually something to flub in the first place. Every show seems a bit tighter than the last, and I think that they should be breathing fire come curveball. So I guess I'm pretty pleased overall, I think. Yeah, I would agree with all of that. I, I think... Um... You know, the challenge with where we're all at right now, it's kind of what I was alluding to earlier. And I think it's part of the reason that we're focusing on these two new songs in this episode. We, we definitely talked about, oh, the Karini's got to be the song that we're focusing on, or Fuego's got to be the song that we focus on. But I think we both came to this this idea that, no, I mean, this tour, and we, we talked about this in our episode featuring the, the Deer Creek Gumbo, where we talked about, you know, our wish list. And while we wanted them to build from the momentum of the Baker's Dozen, we knew and we admitted they're not going to make the Baker's Dozen 2 across America. No. That's just not going to happen. And like John said, I think that's a really great way. Like the preparation that went into the Baker's Dozen is just not what you're going to see on a normal tour. And so... And there's something to be said for sleeping in your same bed in your apartment every night versus sleeping on the bus. Right, and then going to this venue that you, you know, three nights in feels like home. Um, so I'm okay with the with the flubs. I'm okay with where we're at from a song selection standpoint. I think that if there's anything to take away, it's these new songs release. You know, Everything's Right um, showcases as well. I know that's a 2017 debut. Soul Planet technically is as well. But, you know, these are songs that really... Basically, anything that debuted in 2016 and 2017 hasn't had a chance to fully spread its wings. So, um, you know, we're really at this point where, um, you know, the ability to see these new songs take this next step uh, is a really exciting thing. I think is something that we should be celebrating. But you know what? Let's listen to a little bit of the Set Your Soul Free and Soul Planet from the most recent California run of Fish 2018.
Hope that you guys enjoyed that double jam segment and set your soul free and soul planet, or as we like to call it, set your soul planet free. So we're going to talk about two segments of music here, the first of which is called Don't Judge This Record By Its Cover. So what are we doing here? Well, very much like the Forum Show, Bill Graham Night 2, I guess I should say Forum Night 2, Austin. These are shows that if you looked at it by a set list, if this was like the pre-Mixler, pre-Webcast era, and all you could do was log on to fish.net and see the set list and decide if you wanted to do a bunch of B&Ps to get the show, you had to make a decision based on the set list. And these three shows are not very encouraging from a set list standpoint. So we're going to talk about two albums here by two bands that we love, two records that we happen to love, both of which that have horrendous album covers. And if you're at Best Buy at you know 14 years of age and you're trying to figure out where to spend your 1999 on a record, you pull this album up, you're probably going to put it back in the bin. It just doesn't look very appealing. So the first band that we're going to talk about is a band that I know I've mentioned on here. I had to have mentioned on here at some point during an episode. I can't quite remember about it, though. But it's one of my favorite bands. It's a very important band in the last 20 years called Animal Collective. The album that we're going to talk about is Strawberry Jam. And the song that we're going to talk about here is Fireworks. So Strawberry Jam was the seventh album from this Brooklyn Baltimore noise rock band. It's one of the most important bands and transcendent bands of the 2000s. Um, we'll just get this out of the way with regards to the album cover. So for a band that knew how to create cover art, Sung Tongs, Feels, and Meriwether Post Pavilion are some of the best I've seen of this era. The cover for Strawberry Jam is just awful. The name for the record is pretty bad too, all things considered. The cover is literally just Strawberry Jam, which, okay, that's the name of the album. But come on, let's go for a little bit of depth here. I mean, this is a band who released an album, Sun Tongs, so starkly acoustic, but so experimental, which featured two outlines of people on the cover with their energy and vibrations in full display, and then followed this up with a distorted scene from a demented childhood summertime suburban street for their melodic and brilliant 2005 record feels. Further, following Strawberry Jam, they released one of the all-time indie rock covers with Meriwether Post Pavilion which tells you more about the album the more you listen to it. And then they responded with this, with the muddy splattering of earth tones for the compendium EP, Fall Be Kind, which almost 10 years later, that might be my favorite record of the year. The band promptly got back to releasing awful album covers with 2012's Centipede HZ and 2016's Painting Book, though those both proved to be equally bad records. The fact that, and this is kind of just a side note, Animal Collective hasn't released a good, let alone great record, in nearly 10 years now is a total fucking travesty. So in terms of this album... Is it even... I just want to like stop you for one sec. Is it even the same lineup it's same, anymore? Yeah, it's same lineup. Like it's a, they're always like rotating with like the four or five guys in the group. Um, they just... Right. They can't fucking get out of their own way. They're they constantly the trying to. What's that? Don't they all live in different parts of the world? Yeah, like um, uh, Noah Lennox, Panda Bear lives in uh, Portugal. 
think some of them still live in New York. Some of them live in the Southwest. Um, yeah, it's definitely harder for them at this point. You got to give it to them. I mean, Panda Bear's solo career has definitely eclipsed uh, Animal Collective at this point in time from an output standpoint. Um, but, you know, if you listen to their music since Meriwether Post or since Fall Behind, I should say, it's just noise upon noise upon noise upon noise. There's no breath. There's no release. And it's just, I don't know. I don't like it at all. Um, in terms of this album, so Strawberry Jam, just one final thing about the album cover here. So the name of this came from singer and drummer Panda Bear as he and the band were on a plane headed to Greece for a show. Upon receiving his complimentary tray of food, he opened up the packet of strawberry jam that had been provided for his bread. And as he removed the cover of the packet, he was drawn to the look of the glistening jam. And he expressed his desire for the production of the new album to sound like the jam that he looked. That is to say, something that's really synthetic and sharp and futuristic looking, but also tangy and sweet, almost in a kind of aggressive way in terms of the way that it tastes. I wish I had known that. God. Yeah, that doesn't do anything for me from a musical standpoint. <laughs> um, I mean, this is, and this is, don't get me wrong, this is a great fucking record. Um, so this record, this record was released in 2007, which was a phenomenal year for indie rock. LCD Sound System, Sound of Silver came out this year. The National's Boxer, Panda Bears, Person Pitch. Um, so what this record did for the band was to take the melodic beauty of feels and combine it with the youthful glee for pure experimentation of sung tongs, resulting in a record that really didn't sound like anything else created before, but that really helped to influence the larger indie rock world for the next five years. I mean, you really understand listening to indie rock from 2007 to 2012, there's this lingering oversight of Animal Collective throughout that era. The song that we're featuring here from this record, Fireworks, is the closest corollary we have to these past two records. Um, I would also say that Fireworks really foreshadows what we would get from the band in Meriwether Post Pavilion. And this album's release, as well as Panda Bear's release that year, really put listeners on cue that whenever the next animal collective album came out you had to be paying attention to it which resulted in a ton of leaks and downloads before mary rather post actually came out in early 2009 um notably the record was recorded outside of tucson arizona uh, the first time the band recorded a record in this part of the country is they were in search of a totally new environment to record in and really found it to be inspirational for their overall recording and editing and mixing of the album. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to listen to a bit of fireworks here from Animal Collective's Strawberry Jam. Now it's
All right, Brian, so the record I'm going to talk about for not judging a book by its cover is a record that's got a lousy album title and a lousy album art. This is Heroes to Zeros from the Beta Band. We're going to play a song on it called Assessment. It's a leadoff track. I fucking love the Beta Band. In fact, I'm really surprised that we haven't featured any songs by them on Beyond the Pond yet. I went back and looked at the master playlist and Unless I'm mistaken, I didn't see any beta band songs. So the first thing they ever put out, the three EPs, which is um, three individual EPs, kind of reissued as one album. One of my favorite pieces of music released in the last 20 years. I'm very excited for the forthcoming 20th anniversary reissue because it came out in 1998 originally. So this is a quartet of scruffy Scotsmen led by one Steve Mason. And they played a brand of dense, kind of psychedelic pop rock with lush production and an emphasis on songcraft. They're phenomenal songwriters, and every Fish fan should really become acquainted with them as soon as possible. I don't think it's really possible for somebody to really enjoy Fish and not get something out of the beta band. And to the extent that you're familiar with them, it's probably due to John Cusack's character in the movie High Fidelity. He was the record store owner. There's a scene where he attempts to sell five copies of the Beta Band's three EPs by playing the song Dry the Rain in his record store. And I'm pretty sure that Trey Anastasio and Tom Marshall have listened to Dry the Rain because Everything's Right basically rips it off. And if you're not counting three EPs, the Beta Band released three full-length albums, and Heroes to Zeros was the final album, and probably the worst, although in this case it's more of a matter of least good. It's actually a most excellent record with much of the lush production values and strong songwriting, which they made their name, but it kind of has a feel like it's the end of the line. I mean, they didn't break up right away, but it kind of, it had a bit of a finality to it. And it's also plagued by a butt ugly purple cover that depicts the band as cartoony superheroes. The album is much better than its stupid, ugly cover. And in revisiting it for this episode, it's actually a little better than I remember it being also. But really, the purpose of me bringing this album up at all is to get you to listen to the beta band. And since their dissolution, Steve Mason has had a pretty prolific solo career, putting out excellent albums first under the name King Biscuit Time and then under his own name. And these records don't really sound much different than beta band albums, kind of suggesting that they were just a conduit for his vision all along. And he covers lots of songs covering his two favorite topics being love and his battles with depression. They're all good. I think if you're going to get one 2013's monkey minds, the devil's time was probably the best and true to his nature. It has really awful cover art, but that's, probably my favorite solo record of his so let's listen to assessment by the beta band it's the first song on heroes to zeros
All right, taking a little bit of a break here. We're going to talk about some new albums. Lots of new fish to listen to. There's also always new albums, guys. Do not miss it. You don't want to let a month go by when you have to play catch-up between summer tour and fall tour. Learn it from someone who did it once before. It's not fun. You just don't end up uh, really absorbing the records. You're just kind of listening and listening and listening to listen. So here's a couple that we have been enjoying here over the last few weeks. First one I've got up is from a band named American Aquarium, and the album is called Things Change. This is yet another June 1st album I'm finally getting around to promoting here because uh, if you're searching for any part of the year to find really remarkable new albums, look no further than mid-May to early June 2018. Fantastic two to three week stretch that this album came out during. Uh, Dave sent me this record, yet another record this year that Dave's recommended to me that instantly clicked. We must be doing something right here in the podcast. I got to return the favor here sometime soon. Seriously, um, <laughs> you will. I know. You sent me a uh, fantastic record, and uh, you just said, I know that you'll like this. And upon listening to track one, my response back was an all-caps text that said, why are they yelling directly at me? <laughs> this record clicked immediately. Uh, the first track on this record is akin to Jeff Rosenstock's USA, probably the closest I've come to finding a song that really describes how I feel in 2018 about the state of the world. Um, these guys just make phenomenal Southern rock. Um, I really can't say it any other way. I mean, it's equal parts brooding and simple. Um, it's small town. Uh, it is worldly in its value system. It respects hard work and ingenuity and discards ignorance and short-sightedness. In short, this is everything you'd expect from rural America in 2018, but in a lot of cases, nothing that you're getting. And the first four tracks on this record, The World is on Fire, Crooked and Straight, Tough Folks, and we, When We Were Younger Men, are just some fantastic delivery of, of uh, songwriting, song craft. I mean, it's just really great stuff coming at you right away throughout the record, and it does not let up from there. Um, so American Aquarium, they are an alt-country group from one of our favorite cities for music in America, Raleigh, North Carolina. They've been around since 2006, and their name was actually derived from what may be the greatest Wilco tune of all time, I Am Trying to Break Your Heart. Uh, lead singer B.J. Barnum has been the crux of the band throughout its entirety, and even led, he formed this band in his dorm room in 2005 and led a full revamp of the lineup in April 2017. So this album, Things Change, is their 10th record, and it's the first to include an entire lineup change. And um, for a lot of people, it harkens back to some of their best stuff that they were doing back in the mid-2000s. Um, I know they had 10 records. Jeez. Yeah, yeah. Um, they are quite accomplished at this point in time, and um, I would certainly recommend throwing on Things Change. This is um, equal parts, great kind of late night uh, beer drinking record where you just want to be alone with your thoughts and also the kind of record you can throw out on a barbecue and people will be happy. It's just an awesome summertime record with a lot of depth musically and a lot of depth lyrically that um, really important at this point in time. So just to chime in on that album, I would uh, certainly second all the things you say. He kind of, in terms of the songwriting, that's kind of direct and not showy. Like he isn't quite the wordsmith of say Jason Isbell or, um, 
Evan Felker from Turnpike Troubadours. But he's almost more of like, I guess, he's been drawing Southern Springsteen comparisons, but I almost think of him more as Southern John Mellencamp, and that's not a slight. But, you know, in terms of capturing kind of like the hopes and dreams of working class folk in a way that's both, you know, sympathetic and encouraging and doesn't talk down to them, I think it's, he's a good lyricist. It's a very, very solid rock album. So I have record by Howlin' Rain, The Alligator Bride. And to be honest, I haven't listened to a ton of new music lately because I haven't listened to Fish. But the new Howlin' Rain record's pretty great. Their front man, Eat the Miller, he moonlights in like 17 other bands. I think my favorite of which is probably the Fairport Convention folk meets Hawkwind psychometal wizardry of Heron Oblivion. But Howlin' Rain is his main baby now that uh, his band Comets on Fire was that, but they haven't existed since the mid-2000s. So if you're familiar with Howlin' Rain at all, I mean, they've always kind of been a classic rock radio tribute project. They touch on the Doobie Brothers, Crossy Stills and Nash, Santana, Almonds, you know, just about any 70s road rock band you can name. And they don't imbue it with a modern sensibility so much as just take the classic shit and play it really well. And they were a really fun and consistent band until their last album, Mansion Songs, which I don't really know what happened with that record, but it wasn't fun. I don't think it sounded like them. I think it was like a deep studio experiment that was kind of a serious low point in Ethan Miller's career. But the new one, Alligator Bride, it's a big course correction and returns Miller and his buddies to what they do best open-hearted AOR Chugal that sounds here even more uh, like CCR than usual. It's a very fun summertime rock album from expert players who live for such things. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that Ethan Miller was a guest on not one, but two recent Osiris podcasts. He was uh, interviewed on a recent episode of the sound podcast. And he was also, I think interviewed backstage in, um, the No Simple Road podcast. Both of our on the Osiris Podcast Network, and they're both great podcasts hosted by some excellent people. And Ethan Miller is a fascinating guy, so I'd recommend you check those out, as well as check out The Alligator Bride by Helen Rain. All right, so last segment here for the show, segment two: the soul of a song. If anyone's picked up on any themes from Fish Summer 2018. There may only be two songs with soul in the title, but that's a hell of a lot of songs to debut in a year-long period in time. Um, a lot of soul. Trey's got a lot of soul right now, and you can tell he's been listening to a lot of soulful music and has been delivering that soulful music into some of his soulful songs with very soulful titles. Uh, so we are looking for the soul of a song. These are songs that we love that also have soul in the title. I'm going to talk about an artist that... Honestly, I never thought I'd talk about it in this podcast. Um, I never really thought it was essential. Um, I have loved this artist for a long time. I've respected this artist, but I've kind of got to a point where I wonder if he's more of an entry point artist than someone who I keep up with on a long-term basis. I think I might be wrong to that now that I've listened to him again a little bit more in preparation for this podcast. Um, And that's Beck. Uh, Beck is a very important artist for me in terms of my own musical growth, my own musical kind of outreach from very simple, you know, rock music I listened to as a kid to where I'm at now. 
Um, but I kind of have thought I've left him a little bit in the rearview mirror. Um, and then I returned to the record Modern Guilt from 2008, which is Beck's uh, eighth official record. And the song Soul of a Man popped out. And uh, I figured it was a fitting time to talk about uh, Beck Hansen. So this record was recorded in L.A. This was produced by Danger Mouse. And it's only 33 minutes, which we've talked about on previous episodes. My God, just give me a 30 to 40 minute album and call it a day. And I'm super happy. And this record is just the perfect length of time. Um, this was kind of the peak of Danger Mouse. You know, we're talking five years after uh, the Grey album came out. Uh, this year alone saw him produce four different albums, including my personal favorite Black Keys album, Attack and Release which is one of my favorite records that Danger Mouse has been associated with. Um, and this record for Beck really showcased where he's at his best when he's, he's his, at his most simple. He's focused on space and melody and really doesn't try to tinker too much, which also applies, I would say, to Danger Mouse. When he's not kind of all over a record, and you could see this in 2018's um, Parquet Courts, uh, their, their, their release wide awake, which was my number two album of the year at the halfway point. Um, you know, danger mouse is all over that record, but he's not all over in a sense that he's obtrusive in any sort of way. Um, so this record modern guilt, I would say this is probably my favorite back record. And now that it's celebrating its 10th anniversary, it's really amazing how little that has been lost compared to some of his more noteworthy, 2000s records, namely Garrow and The Information. Um, probably the best way I would say to think about this record, a fusion between his earliest work like Mellow Gold, as well as the Sea Chains Morning Phase records, and then his funk work explored around the early 2000s, mainly in like Midnight Vultures. It's subtle, which is something you rarely say about Beck, but it also showcases his overall range and abilities to cross styles in a really seamless way, something that you can always say about Beck. What are your thoughts on this record, Dave? I know that you had mentioned that you you loved this as well. Yeah, this is... I like it because it's an outlier in his catalog in that it's not the sample-heavy funk mashup like Odelay or Midnight Vultures or even Garrow. It's not his purposely languid records like morning phase or sea change i mean probably the closest if you're going to compare it to one album it probably kind of sounds the most like mutations which i think came out yeah yeah that's a good that call came out in between odelay and midnight vultures but you're absolutely right in that it's a subtle record i mean it's like a singer songwriter record but it has a cell has a subtlety and a light touch in a kind of tossed off manner that's actually quite appealing because usually I think Beck either sounds like he's trying too hard and this kind of sounds like he's tossed it off in his sleep, but it's, it's probably, it's easily my favorite Beck album, not named Odelay. Cause I think that's to me is, you know, peak nineties Beck before he got totally a bit overwhelmed with the Scientology stuff, perhaps yeah. <laughs> gotta separate the artist from that a little bit. But yeah, I, I, no, I'm just saying, I still listen to this album on a pretty regular basis. And also, like you said, Danger Mouse is at his best when he's sort of tinkering, adding shade, as opposed to just like putting his like dirty mitts all over the whole record. 
And this is, yeah, this in, like you said, the parquet courts record are kind of Danger Mouse at his best. And he's more of shade and tinkering. Yes. Yes. Which, I mean, that, that's part of the reason I love Attack and Release from the Black Keys. And um, he definitely, he produced their next two records. And both of those, I think, are a little bit too over the top and a little bit too glamorous and 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 this kind of reminds me of attack release in a lot of cases um so you know in terms so in terms of modern guilt um this is kind of one of those perfect flow records um you know no real song is unneeded and every song kind of flows ideally to the next orphans works really well as an opener the title track is a really fun bouncy track that kind of picks up on the surf rock theme um, middle of the midway through the record and kind of has a darker meaning behind it. Youthless and walls are my personal peaks of the record. I think walls is the best song on this album. Um, And uh, I think it's one of his most captivating songs ever. And then, you know, songs like soul of a man, profanity prayers, volcano and the record in just a really kind of melodic and thematic way it uh kind of points the way forward to whatever the next phase was for Beck and and I was shocked to to realize this so this record came out in 08 he didn't release another album until morning phase unless I'm mistaken is is that correct yeah I think that is right I know and that came out in 2014 so I mean that's like a six-year gap for him and up up to this point he was recording regularly from like 1994 on when did Garrow come out that was 04 that had to be 04 0405. I think it went um, uh, Midnight Vultures in 99, Sea Change in 02, uh, Garrow in 0405. The information was 06. Information 06, and then this, and then nothing until morning phase. But back to Modern Guilt. So we're going to play the song Soul of a Man here towards the back half of the record. I hope that you guys enjoy this off of Beck's Modern Guilt. And if you haven't spun this record in some time, I would encourage you to you can get it down probably on your commute, punching out some emails, drinking a beer or so. It's not too long, not too invasive, just right. We my bones against the wall, staring down an empty hall, deep down in a hollow log, coming home like a ladder bomb. think about songs that have soul in the title i kind of picked a bit of an easy one here just because um i was feeling like doing something pretty easy Jimi hendrix and band the gypsies power of soul live at the fillmore east so you know and i know that Jimi hendrix has been reissued and repackaged so many goddamn times that there must be 17 versions of the song lying around but this live at the fillmore east i'm talking about it came out in the early 2000s 
with Hendrix. He's dressed in yellow and he's crouching on the ground playing his guitar. I mean, that one's my favorite. I think it's pulled from the December 31st, uh, 1969 shows. It may be some other time around there. I'm not entirely sure, but I know that band, the gypsies was of course, is a post Jimmy Hendrix experience group, but his army buddies, Billy Cox on bass, Buddy Miles on drums. Some fish fans may know Buddy Miles is the guy who hijacked the encore back on uh, October 22nd, 1996, with the rather spirited version of All on the Watchtower. He also was a fantastic band leader in his own right. But Cox and Miles make up what you would call a rather nasty rhythm section. And frankly, I don't need to waste too much of your time to tell you that Band of Gypsies and Jimi Hendrix in general are pretty good. And this is the same series of shows and also the same album that birthed the Fish fan favorite, Isabella. Unfortunately, as you know, Hendrix went up to the big bandstand in the sky before uh, Band of Gypsies was allowed to get really fucking good. I don't even think they went to a studio. If they did, it wasn't anything completed. I'm sure there's... If there's any kind of Band of Gypsy studio outtakes, I'm sure it was released in some Hendrix package at some point in the past 10 years. I know that Umphreys McGee covers this song from time to time. The kids really dig it. And it's probably my favorite example of the nasty degree of funk and soul that uh, Hendrix was approaching with Band of Gypsies. So let's listen to Power of Soul.
right, guys. Thank you for sticking with us here in our 41st episode. Uh, just doing a quick recap here. Uh, we have focused throughout this episode on the Set Your Soul Free and Soul Planets from Bill Graham and The Forum, respectively. We went through the five shows uh, of Bill Graham, Night 1 and 2, Forum Night 1 and 2, and Austin, a single show from Texas. Um, just as a heads up, before I kind of go through the songs we focused on, um, so this is going up the morning of uh, the first night of Camden. We will be covering Alpharetta, Camden, Raleigh, and Merriweather after the Merriweather run right before Curveball. That will come out right before you guys all drive to Watkins Glen to help with your commute and talk about the previous uh, I believe it will be eight shows of tour, uh, which it's going to be, we'll see. Maybe we'll cover three jams. Who knows? <laughs> but um, in terms of the songs that we covered in this episode, so segment one, don't judge this record by its cover. We talked about Animal Collective's Fireworks off of Strawberry Jam, as well as the Beta Band's assessment off of Heroes to Zeros. Both albums have horrendous album covers, but are really good albums. Uh, in new album recommendations, I talked about American Aquarium's Things Change. David talked about um, Howlin' Rain, The Alligator Bride. And then in our second segment, The Soul of a Song, I talked about Beck's Soul of a Man off of Modern Guilt. And David talked about Jimi Hendrix and Band of Gypsies' Power of Soul off of Live at the Fillmore East. Just a reminder of our social media links. We're on Twitter at at underscore beyond the pond one word simplecast webpage beyond the pond simplecast.fm always on spotify we have our master beyond the pond podcast song playlist it's extremely unwieldy at this point i think it has over 260 songs we always try to add the songs in it around the time of publication to the extent that we can find them on spotify Always encourage you to check out the rest of the Osiris Podcast Network at osirispod.com and leave us a review in iTunes because we read them and it helps uh, bump up our iTunes stats, whatever those may be. So from a publishing standpoint, so this episode is coming out here Tuesday, August 7th. If you're listening to this, you are probably on your way to Camden Night 1 or on your way to Camden Night 2. We sincerely hope all of you have a fantastic time. I have never been to Camden, but from everything that I've heard from Camden and about Camden, is it's a venue I absolutely have to go to at some point. I'm thrilled that they're playing two nights there in the middle of the week. That just reeks of big shows. Um, our next episode is going to come out on Thursday, August 16th, as you guys are all preparing to go to Watkins Glen for uh, Curveball. And then we'll have an episode that comes out right after Curveball between Curveball and Dicks that will focus on Curveball and then one that will wrap up Summer Tour right after the Dicks. So um, you guys got us uh, three more episodes after this covering Summer Tour before we take a little bit of break from Current Fish, get back to covering some uh, older fish jams. Really excited to jump back into that, but having a lot of fun as Fish Tour evolves, moves to the East Coast. You know, this tour strategically has been set up very similarly to summer 2015. If anybody remembers that, they know that once Fish got to Atlanta, tour got really hot, moved at that point from Atlanta into Nashville, moved into Alpine, Blossom was in there, 
Meriwether Post, The Man was in there. I mean, those are some of the best shows of that year. And I think overall 3.0. And with us knowing we've got Alpharetta, Camden, Raleigh, Meriwether all leading up to Curveball. I think we should all be feeling really, really good about where Fish is at right now. Yes, I would agree with that. And I am actually going to be in attendance at Camden Night 2. So if you're listening to this before Camden Night 1 and you see a guy walking around wearing a green heart for wearless cap, chances are it could be me. Say hi. I know I'll be hanging out at um, the Osiris Podcast Network, Fear of a Craft Beer Planet podcast. Those guys told me they're going to have podcast and the table set up in a lot close to the venue there may be beer samples there may be t-shirt cannons i don't know that could be a lot of fun so absolutely looking forward to camden too and i will also be in attendance at friday and saturday of curveball may have to leave early on sunday unfortunately but that's what happens when you're uh, employed and have kids and real world responsibilities and whatnot but anyway i'm pretty happy where we got into uh, with the tour at this point I think it's going to get fiery, and um, if you made it this far, thanks for listening along. We appreciate it very, very much. We will try to keep putting out solid podcasts this entire tour, and come forth with us, have a good tour, and come back, and we will go beyond the pond. Rudolph Valentino looks very much alive, and he looks up Osiris.